Geogrich and welcome back to the study of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Today we will be going from verse 10 to verse 17 in the first chapter, but before we do that I want to give a bit of context by reminding you, or if this is the first video of these that you have seen, by informing you of everything that has happened so far. So the book starts off with the author dedicating it to his friend Theophilus. In the opening four verses, the author, who we know as Luke, the beloved physician, explains to Theophilus, and therefore to us, what his intentions are for writing this book. He wants to give an orderly account of how it all started, that is, how the church began, and got to the point that it was at the time of writing. Luke did this through his two-volume work consisting of his Gospel and the Book of Acts, which we will be going through if we ever get finished with Luke. And I say if because, well, we're, we're certainly taking our time. Then Luke began his historical narrative by focusing on some random priest and his wife Elizabeth, who lived during the reign of King Herod I, or as he liked to call himself, King Herod the Great. After learning a small amount about these people, like how they are unable to have children, Luke focuses in a little bit more, this time with his sole attention on the priest called Zechariah. Luke then explains how Zechariah was chosen by lot to perform a once-in-a-lifetime task. He was to go into the temple to burn incense. Now, the way this uh, selection process worked is, as I have said, by casting lots. That means that they essentially played a game of random chance, sort of like tossing a coin or rolling a die, and let God decide who would win by ordaining the outcome. Now, I'm only using terminology like game and win, because for me, that's the easiest way to articulate it. In reality, it wasn't anywhere near a game. It was an extremely, extremely serious event. So they cast the lot and Zacharias was the one selected. This means that God personally and specifically chose Zachariah to go into the temple to perform this task. Today we are going to learn why he chose Zachariah. And with that out of the way, we will now look at today's passage. Luke 1, 10-17 And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We get started with verse 10. Here we just see people outside performing their duty, that is, they were praying. We aren't told what they were praying about, so I don't imagine it's very important. If it was important, it would be included. Now we'll move straight on to verse 11. Here we finally have the angelic appearance that we've been waiting for for the last four episodes. It is interesting that Luke shows no sign of hesitation when writing this. As John MacArthur pointed out, Luke doesn't preface the appearance of the angel by saying things like, Now, Theophilus. I know you're not going to believe this, but something appeared. Now, I don't want to, you know, say anything silly or anything like that, but I reckon, and stick with me, I reckon it was an angel. Now, I know it seems mad, but I think that's what it was. Luke never writes anything like that. Instead, he just matter-of-factly states that an angel turned up. 
In our modern culture, we are very against the idea of supernatural things occurring, and I think, to an extent, that's fair enough. Certainly, if someone came up to me and said, Hey, hey Ross, guess what? I just seen an angel. I would probably think that they were either lying, uh, they had been high, or hallucinating at the time, or something like that. I certainly wouldn't believe that they'd actually seen an angel. Now, some people at the time may have felt the same way. It had been 400 years since Malachi was written, which was the last book of the Old Testament, meaning it had been 400 years of divine silence. There might have been a few people who were sceptical, but Luke already stated at the start of the Gospel that he was writing a historical account. Everything from the first word of the Gospel onwards was absolute historical fact. He wasn't trying to convince people by humming and hawing and saying things like, oh, I know it sounds crazy, but I promise it really happened. Instead, he provides a small enough amount of evidence and moves on. His primary focus is documentation of the truth, not providing proof. But what do I mean when I say that he provided a small amount of evidence before he moved on? Well, in this verse, Luke specifically mentioned that the angel appeared on the right side of the altar. When I began to look into this passage, I thought there must be some great significant meaning behind the detail, and it seems I wasn't the only one, and it's fair enough, you know. Verses come to mind, like, at the right hand of God, that sort of thing, being on the right. It's a strange thing for it to be mentioned, so surely there must be some sort of meaning, right? Well, I don't think so. I don't think it was symbolic at all. I think Luke was just giving us a small amount of detail to show that this was a historical account. By telling us where the angel stood, he is saying... I know there was an angel there. I even know where it stood. But why did the angel appear specifically on the right side of the altar? Well, it had to stand somewhere. I don't think there was any real reason behind where the angel went. I just think it needed to go somewhere. I just went there because it was as good as anywhere else. I think this can show us the danger of trying to over-spiritualize everything in the Bible. I remember hearing John MacArthur um, tell a story about something like this happening. I don't remember the exact context. I think he was talking with people about the uh, the Temple of the Tabernacle or something. And someone asked him, okay, well, there's meant to be a, a pillar in the back. What's the significance of that? And he said, it's to hold the roof up. Um, so I think you know we, we, just, we have to be careful about over-spiritualizing the Bible. Certainly we get um, application from the Bible for our own lives. But sometimes details aren't meant to be spiritualized. Sometimes they're just there to describe something. The detail of the angel standing on the right wasn't there for some spiritual reason. It's just describing where he was to show Luke is talking about a very real event, a very real angel who had turned up at a real place and actually stood somewhere. Now, let's move on to verse 12. We see here that Zechariah is terrified by the angel as well he should be. You see, angels don't look the way we often imagine them. That is, they don't appear as little cupid-like creatures. There are some who make themselves appear as normal people, but that's not how they usually look. Now, I won't go into a great amount of detail here, but what I will say is that to be face-to-face -face with an angel is a terrifying thing. Sometimes, when looking at the more outlandish elements of the charismatic movement, we see people who claim to talk to God and make it seem like they're just having a normal conversation with one of their pals. Here, we see a truly godly man, someone who is truly right with God, a good servant of the Lord, that is, as good as a man can be, and even this man is terrified by the sight, not of God himself, but of an angel, an angel of the Lord. 
If this is how one responds to seeing angels, I can't imagine how anyone could be so casual about supposedly speaking to God himself. That's just something to be careful of. Verse 13 now, the angel confronts Zechariah by telling him, sorry, comforts Zechariah by telling him not to be afraid. This is what angels pretty much always say upon revealing themselves because whenever they do actually reveal themselves, people are always terrified. Because if you've ever seen those pictures floating around online of biblically accurate angels, they are terrifying. Now next, the angel tells Zechariah that his prayers will be answered or have been answered. This um, has caused quite a bit of debate as we are never actually told what specifically Zechariah is praying for. After the angel tells Zechariah that his prayers have been answered, he says that he will have a son. Because of this, a few people have said that Zechariah's prayer was for a son. I don't think that's the case. In verse 18, which we will be covering in the next video, Zechariah reacts to the news that he will have a son in disbelief. As far as he is concerned, even a proclamation from God via an angel isn't enough proof that he will actually have a son. Now, this response was likely a response of shock, as Zachariah was probably caught off guard by this proclamation and didn't quite know how to respond. The fact that he was so shocked, in my mind, proves that the idea of him having a child might not even have crossed his mind. If he had prayed for a son and an angel had turned up and said, hey, guess what, you're getting the son, surely he would have been more accepting of it as, once he heard the words, your prayers have been answered, he would have immediately assumed that the angel was talking about the prayer he had just prayed, the prayer for his son, um, but instead, he reacted with disbelief. I think that part of the shock came from the fact that he wasn't praying for his son. Therefore, he didn't see how him getting his son was an answer to his prayer. Also, we know from previous um, verses that Zechariah was a righteous man. I can't imagine someone who is the way Zechariah is described as being, um, acting so selfishly as to go before the altar and pray for something which he seems pretty certain isn't going to happen. I think it's clear that what he, um, I think it's clear that he didn't think he would get a son, so I doubt he would wa essentially waste his prayer on that. So what was he praying for? Well, I've heard a few answers, and in my opinion, the answer which is the best is that he was praying for the salvation of Israel. But then, how is him receiving a son an answer to that prayer? Well, we learn that in the next few verses. The angel tells Zechariah to call his son John. In the Bible, naming someone is considered an act of authority um, over that thing, or in some cases, that person. For example, in Genesis, Adam names all the animals. Later on, after the fall, once the authority of the man over the woman in the marriage covenant has been established, Adam names his wife Eve. Here, the angel is showing God's authority uh, over John. Sorry, yeah, over John. John will not be accountable to man, but rather to God and God alone. Because God has authority over John, not man, God gets to name him, not man. John's sole purpose is to carry out the will of the Lord, nothing else. And also, there are a few uh, instances as well of people in the Bible um, being specifically named by God. Generally, it means that they are set apart for greater work. Now we get on to verse 14. Um, where we begin a bit of a build-up which will last the next two verses. Each verse gives us more and more details about John until his ultimate goal is finally revealed in verses 16 and 17. This verse simply tells us that the birth of the child will bring about a great amount of joy for many people. 
So from uh, these last two verses, we learn that this coming child is going to bring joy to people, many people, and somehow is involved in the salvation of Israel. Now moving on to verse 17, this verse continues to build up the anticipation. It says that this child will be great before the Lord, just like his parents are. It describes how he will live his life, saying that he will refrain from things like alcohol and strong drink. This is just an indication of the kind of life John will live, completely devoid of care of worldly things like alcohol, nice clothes or food, though the last two things aren't specifically in this verse. Finally, we are told that the child will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the time of his conception. There will, be, nah, there will not be so much as a single moment in this boy's life when the Holy Spirit will not be inside of him. Verse 16. Finally, after the build-up of the last two verses, we find out why John is so special. The reason is that he will find the lost sheep of Israel. He will go to the children of the Lord who think they are right with God, but in reality they are not, and he will cause them to repent and truly turn to God. Moving on to verse 17. Here the idea continues. He will change the hearts of the people who think they follow God, but don't, into hearts that actually do follow God. But that's not all the verse tells us about him. It also says that he will act in the spirit and power of Elijah. But what's that referring to? If we go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we see that it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then later on in Malachi, in chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, John the Baptist is Elijah, right? Well... Let's go to John chapter 1, verse 21. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So then John wasn't Elijah. But then who was? Well, John was. If we go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, is this a contradiction? Well, no. If we look at verse 17 again, it says that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was an Elijah-like figure. That is what Jesus meant when he said John was Elijah. He was referring to the fact that John was the Elijah-like figure Malachi had foretold. But when John said that he wasn't Elijah, he was referring to the literal, physical Elijah. What I mean is, he was denying the idea that he was the actual prophet Elijah, just with a different name. He was not literally a returned Elijah. He was just an Elijah-like figure. He was acting with the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. He wasn't the prophet himself. He was acting with the spirit and power of the prophet. So, what can we get from these verses that applies to our own lives? What's the application? Well, I think we can grow in love and gratitude towards God. You see, while I don't think Zachariah was praying for a son when the angel appeared, he and his wife had almost certainly spent many, 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 many years praying for a child, likely a son, so that they could pass down the priestly tradition. It is generally accepted that Zachariah would have been at least 60 or possibly a, a fair bit older, because you never, uh, in those days you didn't retire from 
being a priest. Zachariah could have been a priest. He could have been 90 when this happened, though it's very unlikely. He, he could have been literally any age. We don't know any age generally believed to be about after 60. But it, it is unlikely that he was about 90 at this stage. Whatever age he was, he wasn't young. This leads a lot of people to believe he may have given up hope of ever having a son and that he may have stopped praying for one by the time uh, this event occurred. We don't know whether or not this is the case. What we can know is that in all likelihood, even if he stopped praying, he never stopped wanting. He may have stopped praying for a son, but there is no reason for him to no longer want one. The stigma would always be there, no matter how old you get, the stigma of not having a child. So when God granted him a son, he displayed his love. God could have chosen any one of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of priests to raise John, but instead he chose a faithful old man and his wife who were unable to have children. Instead of just giving anyone the responsibility and blessing of raising John the Baptist, excuse me, the predecessor to Jesus, he gave it to someone to which it would mean so much more. To most of the priests, this would have been a wonderful privilege, but to Zachariah, it was more. Yes, it was a great responsibility and a great privilege, but it was also more. In being given this boy, Zachariah and his wife were getting more than the herald of the coming Messiah. They were getting a son, the one thing they had wanted perhaps more than anything else in the world. By giving John the Baptist to Zachariah, God was demonstrating his unfailing love and kindness and compassion. God doesn't, uh, didn't just give Zechariah and Elizabeth a responsibility and a privilege. He also gave them a truly wonderful and lovely gift. Something as well um, I think possibly is interesting is how Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been very old at this time. Now, this means that they likely could have spent a few years with John, a good few years with John, likely having passed away um, before his ministry began, because John, if you remember, was beheaded uh, after Jesus' ministry began. Now, Jesus' ministry began about 30 or so years after this. So... You know, he's, he's about 60 or possibly older. Chances are he's probably passed away from natural causes by the time John dies, meaning that he gets this blessing of a son. He gets to have a son. Him and his wife get to have a son and raise him and love them for probably the first, up to the first few years of John's adult life before they reach an old age and they pass away and go to be with the Lord. And that means they never have to deal with the horrible pain that would have come with John the Baptist's death. They weren't going to have to deal with that. They weren't going to have to go through that heartbreak. So I think that's also um, a demonstration of God's love that he gave it to them at that stage in their life where they could spend a couple of decades with the boy um, watching him become a man, possibly even watching the start of his ministry, but they wouldn't have to go through the heartbreak of finding out that he'd been killed because Harrod had make it, had made a promise um out of lust you know and to think of the death of John the Baptist just um from a historical point of view is, is like not even being connected to him really for me personally is a sad thing to think about it is a horrifically sad thing to think about 
how much more sad would it be to be the parents and have to live through that? So I think that the fact that God waited until they were old so that they could, you know, old enough that they wouldn't likely see the death of John, but young enough that they would be able to spend a fair bit of time with him, I think is also a brilliant example of his grace and love and mercy and his kindness. Now, because of the setting God chose to do this in, uh, to send the, the, the angel to, He's really calling attention to a number of his characteristics. When the angel comes to Zechariah, he's burning incense in the temple. He was performing a very serious, not that there's no serious, uh, or there's a form of worship that's not serious, but he was performing a very serious act of worship to a God who had killed people for failing to worship him properly. By choosing here to tell Zechariah the news, God was showing something about himself, saying something about himself. You see, Plenty of people would probably look at the story of Aaron's two sons being incinerated for improper worship and think that God was a cruel, angry and mean God. But that isn't the case. God is just and holy. To worship him is always a serious thing. To do it improperly is always a serious offence and all sin is worthy of death. The wage of sin is death. But while God is holy, righteous and just, and we should never forget those characteristics because in modern day evangelical Christianity, we forget them so readily because it's just not nice to think about. We cannot forget those characteristics of God. We must also remember he is kind, compassionate, caring and loving. There's nothing wrong with putting emphasis onto certain characteristics of God at certain times, but we cannot pretend those are the only things. We cannot pretend God is caring, loving, compassionate, kind, and not righteous, holy, and just. At the same time, we can't pretend he's righteous, holy, just, but not kind, compassionate, caring, and loving. We must remember he is all of these things. All of these things matter. God is good. And what uh, is happening here in this passage exemplified that. Here, the setting reminds us of the seriousness of his holiness and the event reminds us of the wonderful nature of his love, kindness, compassion, caring nature, mercy, so on and so forth. God is good, God is love. And we are reminded of that in this passage. I think we can learn something about God from the names of the characters as well. The two main characters so far are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah means God is remembered, and Elizabeth means God is faithful or God keeps his promises. So even in the names of these people, we see that God remembers his people and is faithful to keep his promises to them. In this passage, God remembers his promise to send an Elijah-like figure and ultimately to save Israel. And that is exactly what he is beginning to do here. He has remembered his promise. He is faithful. So he is keeping his promise. And what we can also learn is that God is always working out this plan. While that plan might include us going through trials and tribulation, it will ultimately end with us profiting in some way or us benefiting in some way. Now that profit may come in a form of a great, of greater spiritual maturity, for example, or some sort of blessing in our lives, or it may simply be our salvation, meaning it may be, uh, pr- maybe the only way we'll profit is you know, going to heaven and we won't actually see any benefits while here on earth, any major benefits while here on earth. But God's people will always end up benefiting from his plan in one way or another, even if they must suffer through some things first. And we see this with 
so many people, we see this here with Zechariah, we see this with Job, suffering so much and gaining so much. We see this with Joseph. They meant it for evil, I meant it for good, and everything that worked out for him. And as well, how Joseph used, or sorry, how God used Joseph's um, trials to help so many other people. God is working out a plan that will ultimately benefit us. Sometimes here on earth, on earth always by means of our salvation, always by giving us our salvation even. Now, finally, I think we learn not to over-spiritualize things in the Bible. Just because we see that the angel is standing in a specific place, that doesn't mean that there is some greater spiritual truth to that. It could very well be that he is just um, it's just a description of the situation which happened to include some extra detail, like where somebody is standing. The over-spiritualization of, uh, of the Bible, of verses in the Bible, has led to some very unbiblical sermons. I'll give you an example of, a, I believe it was Lakewood, Joel Osteen's church, I think. I, it was Lakewood or it was Fertix Church, I'm not sure. It was one of the two, um, I think. They're all pretty much the same anyway. Um, they invited a celebrity professing Christian, I don't even remember who it was, it was a while ago this happened, but they invited, not a preacher, no, it was a celebrity who professed faith in Christ. And they, um, this celebrity was doing a message about a passage. I don't remember what the passage was, so that shows you how important the overall passage was to the sermon. What I do remember is the Bible version they used and the way the passage started. I remember they were using the King James, and I remember the way the, 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 the verse started, because the verse started with the phrase, and so it came to pass. Now, and so it came to pass is basically the King James translation of the Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, depending on where you're um, reading in the Bible. Um, it's basically the King James way of saying, and then. So, and so it came to pass that John walked up the road means, and then John walked up the road, essentially. But what this guy got out of that was, and so it came to pass, and I think the verse was describing some sort of a trial or a tribulation or something like that. So his whole message was based off that, and so it came to pass, it did not come to stay. And then he went on with the usual prosperity nonsense. Which here's the thing, I mean, he could have, if he tweaked the sermon a little bit, it could have been about how sometimes God rewards um, or blesses people here on earth. But it wasn't because it wasn't about blessings God sometimes gives. It's about the supposed it was about the supposed prosperity that God always gives again supposedly, um, and it wasn't based on the verse I was actually talking about. That it was based on a specific English translation of a phrase that basically meant "and then." So that's what happens when you over spiritualize the Bible. That's what like that phrase literally just meant "and then." It was a way of moving the story along. But because this person didn't understand that and they over-spiritualized it and they clearly didn't actually understand the verse, they, they came out with this nonsense, um, prosperity gospel nonsense about how it, it came to pass, didn't came to stay, therefore God always wants uh, you to be happy. So maybe if something bad happens, it will always go better for you and it will never ever stay bad. You'll never have a bad experience that lasts so long and so on and so forth. So this um, prosperity nonsense masquerading as uh, Christianity. And I think that's what we see a lot of the time. People misunderstanding verses, over-spiritualizing certain things, something like that. Um, and it just leads to this. Uh, uh, an example I think of is, I believe it's Matthew 
9.19. So it's this, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. The verse is, and Jesus got up and followed him. Now, you could over-spiritualize that and say, Jesus is following someone. There is someone greater than Jesus, and Jesus is following that person. Or you could use your brain, read the entire thing, and see that what's actually happening is Zacchaeus is leading Jesus to his house so that Jesus can perform a miracle. So when we over-spiritualize the verse, it, it completely changes it. Completely changes it. What the verse is actually about is Jesus literally just walking down the road. But if you over-spiritualize it a certain way, it makes it seem like there was someone above Jesus who Jesus had to follow or who could lead Jesus in a way that Jesus wasn't prepared to go or something like that. So that's the danger of over-spiritualizing the Bible and we need to be careful. We need to make sure we don't do that. And if we see someone doing that, we need to correct them and we need to just steer clear of that sort of thing. So I hope you liked this video and found it enjoyable. But most of all, I hope you found it edifying and were able to learn something from it. I hope you join me in the next video as we continue our look at this wonderful word of our wonderful God. Thank you for watching. God bless and goodbye.